Okay, welcome, welcome, everybody. It is October 21st. Pumpkin spice is in the air. Uh, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, part 3. So uh, we're going to have three or four parts to this, uh, this chapter. It's a very important chapter. It really began with 1 Corinthians 12, that last one, which we were saying was a really important one. That set us up. We've done part one, two of 1 Corinthians 13 and part three today. Let's have a prayer. Sing the word of God. Hear it at least. Set to music. Sit in silence. Come back and get into our study. Lord, love you and uh, grateful for uh, beautiful fall days, the country we live in, um, the freedoms we have. Your spirit that you send that comforts us amidst turmoil and, and difficulty and uh, the knowledge that we have that you loved us so much. You gave us your only uh, begotten son. He came and lived and died and rose again. And we have great hope in that uh, desire and expectation in these things that you teach us. We pray your spirit will be with us now as we gather together here and online and just to consider what's being said about this concept of godly love. And it is the end road of Christianity. It's the focal point. It's the goal for us to have, possess, and exercise it, to choose it. And so equip us with your spirit. Things I say which are wrong, forget them, and uh, let people know those things, and uh, just move on. And then help us to then walk out of here, just kind of uh, training that we do together every week, and go out and be uh, your sons and your daughters and your children in this fallen world that we can be a light to people who are seeking truth. And we pray for this now in Jesus' name. Amen. For if you live according to the flesh,
Judge not, that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Judge not, that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Judge not, that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Judge not, that judge you be not judged. For with what judge you will be judged. You will be judged. And measure measured. It will be measured back to That you be not judged. Okay, uh, in part three of 1 Corinthians 13, the chapter on love, it's godly love, not just human love, not the love that benefits our person, not the love that helps our social lives, not the love that helps our romantic lives, but the love that, well, it helps all of it, helps our, our, our lives in this way, but it's the winning love. It's the love that is victorious. Uh, and therefore, because uh, it is this kind of love, it's sacrificial love, a love that requires suffering on the part of the individual. And to some extent, it's a love that turns the other cheek when we've been offended and struck. It's a love that goes the extra mile. It's a love that uh, suffers. This love suffers. Uh, and it's tough. It's really tough to choose to live by. It forgives people who hurt us and injure us. And it seeks to heal. It seeks to bring peace. It seeks to do good always. We call it the beneficial goodwill love. And it seeks the light. And it is this very love that God is. This is what God, people want to know what is God? Who is God? God is love. He is this thing we choose to exude. And when we make that choice, it's a wonderful thing. And so, you know, we are constantly somehow hurting him 
through our selfish ways, and yet he chooses to love us in this way with long suffering and with kindness, and we strike him and he turns the other cheek. This is all in there. Before we continue on with this series on this kind of love that God is, perhaps we should take a minute. We ended on this last week with Kathy asking a question, and it's a concept called tough love. And uh, the wires can get crossed when it comes to agape love that God is and tough love, although I believe that they can be interrelated and they can be associated one with another. How do we deal with predators, for instance, people who are, uh, they want to hurt us for some reason, or how do we deal with a a drug-addicted child or a rude, self-centered individual uh, who never seems... We shock them to death. That's what we do. And we just took care of one. (laughs) Thank you, Dave. (laughs) The body will be disposed of in a brief service afterward. (laughs) How do we deal with the people that are difficult in our lives? Add in the question it comes into is how do you raise children? For those of you who are still raising children, and that require, children require discipline, and they require structure, and they require some things that are a little bit different sometimes than what this agape love looks like. So how does God's love fit into this situation? Well, to begin with, and I'll just share some thoughts, I'm a sold-out proponent of what the world has labeled tough love. I, I do believe in it. I have zero issue with people applying it, and I think people can benefit by it. But remember that it has to begin with goodwill. That was the first thing we said agape love is. It's the goodwill. And so when you exercise tough love, you're doing it because you want to help that person. You're not doing it because you want to hurt them. If you're doing it because you want to hurt them or, or cause them pain because you think the pain, they deserve it instead of the pain is needed to help them, you have a problem in your head to begin with. Because So tough love has to begin with You desire the benefit of the other person, which is why you are, uh, you know, uh, choosing to uh, use it. But there are a number of factors in addition to this. If you don't have agape love when you operate tough love, then it's it's not going to work at all either way. A child or a teen or a difficult adult, I believe, has to first understand the love we have for them that is agape. They have to understand perhaps even the storge love or the eros love or the philos love that we have for them, depending on the person, before the tough love is going to work. So just I would maybe suggest to you that that is really important, that that agape love is firmly in place and they are really aware that they have that from you before you try to implement what we call tough love. And that means that, remember, the first thing Paul brings out about this love that God is, is that it's long-suffering. So, so tough love doesn't go up to the stranger and try to implement it. The stranger's not going to respond because you've exercised no long-suffering toward their person or character. You just have jumped on the opportunity to correct them, and they haven't experienced this 
this love that God has for you and I in their lives from you. And so it's probably going to be ineffective. So it's grace after grace. It's kindness after kindness. It's uh, uh, not boastfulness, not vaunting itself. Express to the person it, uh, before the tough love can be, can be implemented. And... Um, so the person knows you love them. That's the first consideration. The second consideration is that godly love continues to be exerted while in the midst of tough love. You don't, you don't just separate them out, I don't think. And so while it's being given and it's tough, they know you still love them with this godly or storge or phileo love. Um, you know, sort of like honey, until you can choose to stop using heroin and destroying yourself um, and stealing from us and trying to get your bro younger brother to use to, mom and I, we can't have you here. And I mean, that, 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 that approach is automatically loving. It's, it's a tone that's loving. It's not, you drug user, get out of here. It's, we can't have you here. It's, it's too detrimental to the whole family unit. And so we have to make a choice for them. We love you with all of our heart. And I am, we are always here to, to help you whenever you need it. We can't give you money anymore. You know, we can't. Because to give you the money means to go into your arm. And so we have to stand on this tough love. But you know we love you. And you, if you think back on our lives together, you know it's there. They have, the child has experienced the agape love before the tough love comes into play. That's that rule number one we talked about. So, and, and of course, when you're ready to start harming yourself, stop harming yourself and harming others, we are here, you know? But just understand that's, what, that's the approach we're taking. Mary and I, we come from very, that's my wife, we come from very uh, different approaches on how to deal with difficult situations. We, we, from our youth, we came from very different places. Mary's dad was a full bird colonel and mom was tough. And so they were very big on correcting bad behavior when they saw it with a very militaristic type of approach. And, um, and so that it's really hard. I mean, really hard, emotional, even physically, for her to put up sometimes with people who um, interrupt, who walk up to your car on the street when you're driving through town and knock on it and say, can you give me something? That, that imposition to her is really a, uh, an affront to etiquette and courtesy and someone who's not entitled. She, she just doesn't deal with it. She never has. And it, she's, she's here. So I I'm not talking behind her back. This is a fact, and she knows it. We've been married 34 whatever years. <laughs> oh, it seems like one year. We're still on our honeymoon. She thinks we've been married 400 years, but, uh, but our differences don't go away in this in how to deal with difficult people. She has to choose constantly to love with agape love. It's a choice she is, and that is not easy. My heart goes out, and she's making a choice where often I don't have to make that choice. Often it's just more natural for me to not be bothered as much as she is. So ironically, though, I used to get angry and non-agape love toward her when she failed in love toward others. I mean, isn't that ridiculous? 
She fails in love, and I respond with failing to love to her because I'm angry that she didn't love the person who didn't deserve it. And it's a vicious, vicious cycle when you try to use your flesh to respond to someone who's responding in their flesh to someone who is responding in their flesh. And it turns into this thing, you know, that over all these years we've had to learn to deal with. And so for her, unless people are called out and challenged on their behavior, she does not believe they will change. And so she believes it's necessary to call them out. When you play that kazoo in the middle of the movie, I have to say something to you, right? And she will, of course. But I think that it is a great form of agape love to confront people in their error. And I couldn't agree more. It is loving to shine a light uh, in the darkness, even if it causes issues between parties. It is a form of love because God does that with us all the time. He's always calling us out on our stuff, isn't he? But he loves us unconditionally and he is pouring his blessings upon us in our evil. But he calls us out because he loves us. The scripture says that if you are chastised, you are a son or daughter of God. That he does not chastise his, the bastards, is the word it uses in the English. That he doesn't chastise those who are not his. So it is a form of agape love to chastise, but just remember in the context of what we've been talking about. The storge, the philos, the agape has to be known by the other party if you really want your correction to take place. So this is the key, I think, to raising children, and, but that's individual, and it's the key to dealing with rebellious teens and very difficult adults. One more thing about dealing with uh, challenging adults. It's really important to remember that they have gotten to adulthood with the traits that challenge everybody. They have somehow made it through childhood, teenhood, and early adulthood to be the adults who challenge you. And my wife would say that's because no one's ever challenged them. <laughs> and so I'm going to do it. Uh, in all probability, they haven't experienced the kind of godly love that is constantly being poured down in the admixture of um, tough love. They've probably received a lot of tough love, but have somehow missed the idea of the agape, of what it really means. And so they continue to behave in ways that grate on societal norms. However, this is really important. Even when our efforts with difficult people fail, even when tough love fails and agape love fails, agape love must remain in place. It has to continue on. And that is not because it's going to work. It's because that's what we are called to do, to love. It's not because it is going to work. And that's the difference between our thinking about love and God's thinking about love. He tells us Christians, love people with this love that Paul is describing, and he doesn't give us an exception. He doesn't say in a caveat down there, and if it fails to work, you can stop it. Because it doesn't always work because of freedom. 
That's the rub. That's the difficult part about it is I have shown you agape love over and over and over again. And yet you still steal radishes from my garden. I continue to forgive you and you still do it. That's why Jesus says you forgive seven times 70. That's why Paul says this agape love never fails and is long suffering. This is what makes it the most difficult thing about being a Christian. It's because it's not predicated on winning, having a victory, or um, overcoming the difficulties of this world. It's just the command, you know? So those are some keys. No, No matter what happens, we are called to exercise. And again, I say choose because it's a choice. To love this way. Okay, so we read last week, God loves suf- godly love suffers long and is kind. We talked about that. Godly love envies not. We talked about that. Godly love vaunteth not itself. And we talked about what that meant. So let's read on. Godly love, verse uh, 4, is not puffed up. That's the end of verse 4. We're going to cover what that means. And then, does not behave itself unseemingly seeks not its own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. Here we go. This is perhaps one of the most important passages to define our love for for people and its benefit. You ready? Verse 7, godly love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. If we could live verse 7, you could throw the Bible away. <laughs> you can throw that away. You can, if we could live it, I, I think that th- we are Christians. We are walking with Christ. We are God's children. It is there, right? So we're going to get to that verse, but we got to get through the other one. Verse 4 ended with Paul adds something. He says, Godly love vaunts not itself. We covered that last week, what it meant. That meant it outwardly doesn't boast. Thank you. Does not outwardly boast. And, uh, and then he says, and is not puffed up. And we might think, maybe he's just repeating himself. Doesn't outwardly boast, isn't puffed up. The word translated vaunteth not itself is perperu ahamahi, huge word. And it means it just does not boast of its accomplishments, okay? It's not boastful. But when we read the next line, it's not puffed up. It sounds like he's saying the same thing, but it's fusi uu, and it means <laughs> fusi uu made Patrick laugh. It doesn't make proud. It's, it also means to inflate something. And so perhaps it's different from the word boasteth, where that might relate to outward expressions. Well, I just got on my, you know, $500,000 yacht, and we just went to the south of France, and we ate with kings, and, you know, that's the, bo- that's the vaunting of itself. But fusiu speaks to the vanity that's in the heart. So that's how you would distinguish between vaunts not itself and is not puffed up. In other words, and this is often the case, a person can be extremely proud and vain in their heart and never express it in the form of boasting. Never. 
they can appear to be humble, you know, actually, because they never talk about anything. But their heart has an inner pride. Fusi'u'u. It is puffed up. And I sometimes wonder if, you know, sometimes if exuberant boasting is a form of making oneself feel better because in their heart they really are broken down. You wonder sometimes. Do you have to constantly boast of yourself because no one else boasts of you or something like that? But uh, it seems to be a revelation, the fusiyu, of an abundance of pride deeply rooted in the heart. That's the true pride. That's the proud heart. Uh, and sometimes very little can be, can be expressed outwardly in that case. I, you have to wonder why Jesus, think about this, the only son of the true and living God to walk this earth was not proud in his heart. I mean, he had every reason to be, right? You remember when he was coming out of the Garden of Gethsemane and he told Peter, who cut off the ear of Malchus, don't you think I can call down 10,000 legions of angels and wipe this place out? Don't you think I can do that, Peter? You know, I got the power. I got the power. I've got the power. Right? Sorry. Uh, he's got the power, but he was not proud. He, he didn't walk in this pride. What is it that God the Father that makes him not look down on us and just wipe us out like ants on a sidewalk from a demonic little child, right? What causes God not to just scoff at us and smash us in our ridiculous ways? Why would God, especially the only human son, not possess pride in his heart? That's really remarkable when you think about it. So, he could have outwitted everybody, Jesus, with everything. Critical assessments. He could have condemned every single sinner that he confronted with, pointed a finger of condemnation. You adulterer, you sinner, you fornicator. Boom, but you are nothing. God is, you know, I am good, you are not, kind of thing. But complete humility. God's only son, totally humble. I think the only answer we have is because he was totally love. And I don't think in the presence of godly love, pride can exist. I don't think it's possible. In the presence of godly love, human pride is impossible. Look, listen to the attributes again. Godly love suffers long. Well, pride says, I don't have the time for this. I've got an important meeting. And you are, you know, pride does not suffer long. Pride says, I, 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 I've got something to do, and I'm more important than you, and you aren't as important as me, and it rises uh, through, it, pride just comes out when there's not long suffering, uh, is kind. Pride has no need for kindness. God is love. God is kind. God is long suffering. But God is not unkind. Pride is, is unkind because it compares everything to itself, right? It doesn't envy. It doesn't vaunt itself. It's not puffed up. Uh, pride does not, does not behave itself unseeming is the next one we're going to cover. Pride is entitled. Pride says, take me as I am because I'm important. Jesus said the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, right? The Son of Man went about. He didn't say, I'm important. Give me everything of this world. Satan offered him that. So pride says, I can behave in any way I want. 
I can say anything I want, anytime I want, whenever I want. I can put myself ahead of others because I'm that good. Godly love says you don't puff yourself up or boast. It looks for the benefit of others, not the promotion of the self. We live in an age of pride, man. We live in an age of self. The selfie covers it. Self Magazine came out maybe 30 years ago. Self Magazine. I remember when it came out. I remember looking at that title and I thought, I wasn't even a born-again Christian. And I thought, we're in trouble. Self Magazine, right? And in some ways, it's the result, truly, of being preyed upon. I mean, like in our day and age, we have women coming forward all the time of how they've been preyed upon by men. That's a big common topic today. No problem. They should stand up. They shouldn't say, oh, no, it's not about me, it's about him. Let me take all of his strangeness out upon myself. No, not at all. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about human personal pride that says, I'm entitled above you because I innately possess something you don't. That's what men have been doing, apparently, to many of these women. They've been saying, I'm entitled. They've been living by pride, right? Living by the self. Seeks not her own is the next one. Again, that's all pride would seek is its own. Godly love doesn't seek her, its own. It, self seeks to be heard, needs to be given attention, needs to be fed, needs to be complimented. Not godly love. When we look at the traits of Satan in Scripture compared with Christ, Satan sought his own interest in everything. Christ sought the interest of others. Pride was at the root. The next one's not easily provoked. We're going to cover that. You want to see pride at work? <laughs> Confront an expert in a field that they know and challenge their, assess, uh, the, their assertions. Often, not always, but often, you will see, boom, pride at work, right? Is not easily provoked is what this godly love looks like. Uh, a humble response would come from the, the, the person who is challenged. And that's not easy. So I'm going to finish this up. I'm not going to take all of them out. But in the end, love, godly love, is the reason why Jesus was not proud. He was full of God's love. And there's the reason God is not proud. He is this love we seek to uh, echo. So we continue on the list. Godly love does not behave itself unseemly. Unseemly, it says in the King James, seeks not her own, is not easily provoked, thinks no evil. I've touched on does not behave itself unseemly, but I want to get specific because it's important. To start, the Greek is askamoneo, and it means disgracefully, improperly. Agape love does not behave itself disgracefully or improperly. It's used only twice in the apostolic record, and it means it's a love that conforms to the circumstances at hand. It's a love that conforms to the circumstances at hand. Why? Because the circumstances at hand dictate that someone should be selfless and not selfish. And so the circumstances at hand say, I need to conform myself to these circumstances for everybody's benefit. So... I remember when we first started out in ministry, we were up at the U of U and we were in a room and this kid came down to the front row and started smoking. Right in the middle of it, he started smoking. 
Now, this was before I knew what a vape was, but it was a vape. And it was billowing up, and it smelled. And finally, I said, what are you doing? <laughs> he said, I'm smoking my vape. It's not dangerous. It's just mist, man. And I'm like, all right. I'm trying to be like, we want to be free with everybody. But the more the guy did it, the more I'm like, there's something wrong. What is wrong here? And what was wrong was that he was, he was behaving himself unseemingly. He was not considering that other people couldn't even see me through the smoke, <laughs> that it smelled, that it may not have been what he said, just vapor. It had an effect. We could all smell it. And it was just sheer entitlement. Just total, I don't care about what anyone else needs. It's all about me. And I kind of wish I would have maybe called him out a little bit more on that. You know, it's okay to smoke that. You know, just, just go outside right now. You know, but I, I, I wasn't aware at that time how to handle it. So um, it would allow, it would not allow for the mistreatment of people in authority, the group at large, or people who are servants is how the Greek kind of used that word. The concept's really broad, but it really just means good decorum. Good decorum. That's what godly love is. It's good decorum. Now, I come from the punk age. I, I love punk, you know, and I think there's a time and place for everything. I just interviewed with some atheists. My decorum could go down then, because in that group, it was loving for me to, you know, be with them in the way that they were. That was good decorum for them. It would have been improper decorum for me to go on in piousness of Christianity and look down on them as atheists. And so you look at the situation at hand and you, you, you resort to what's going on. You use that filter of God's view of what is going to be best for the group. Got it? Proper respect. Paul's day, there was a group of Greeks known as cynics, and they loved to defy traditions uh, that were the ideas of the decent common world. The cynics uh, would express their personal freedom, right? And they would break all the social no uh, norms and mores and, uh, as much as they could. And Paul might be saying here that godly love would cause a per person to not be like the cynics because that's the setting of his day. He's fighting Greek influence. Don't be like this. Don't be so liberated in your love of God that you just discount everybody else. Of course, Paul was also willing to dis disrupt the peace with the sharing of the good news. So there's always a paradox with scripture. But I, he seems to be saying, have general consideration for everybody at large. Promote the happiness of everybody involved. Um, the next one, like the others Paul has mentioned, seems to flow right out of the former. He says, agape love seeketh not her own. For some reason, uh, the King James feminized this. It's gender neutral in the Greek, so it's really... Uh, godly love seeks not its own. It should be its, not her. Just like the Holy Spirit in the New Testament should be it and not he. They, we've taken the liberty to make the Holy Spirit a he in Scripture when it's general neutral every time. So we might suggest that this statement is really a good summary of the whole point. Genuine agape love is not self-seeking because if we look, if we took the time, we might see that every one of the characteristics mentioned by Paul here uh, is in opposition to self-seeking. So we almost have like a, a standard little rule. Agape love 
is selfless and not selfish. And you can almost just kind of summarize the entire chapter that way. You know, it's selfless, not selfish. And it seeks the benefit, the goodwill of God and others over the self in all these different ways. This is the end goal to the faith, to take people who are selfish from birth, that's all of us, and for us to grow in our faith in Christ to where we become less selfish and more selfless. That's the goal. And so uh, someone selfish, of course, children, babies, teens, they have a lack of consideration for others often. They're, they're concerned with their own benefit, their own well-being, and they're self-serving, and they place their wants and their needs ahead of others. You quickly learn when you become a parent that suddenly you have a choice to make. Do I serve myself or do I serve my wife or my husband and my children? And, and good marriages and good parents will choose the agape love. And you'll often hear people say, I learned most about love when I became a parent and when I got married. Because you have to die to yourself, right? So in our examination of the life of Jesus, we're presented with a living example of the selflessness. He placed his life ahead of others, even giving it for the, for the salvation of the world, right? So when the results of the fall were in Eve, remember, Eve... She's tempted with the fruit, and it says that the fruit is good for food, is the first justification she gave. In other words, she says, I want to eat it, self. God said, don't eat it. She said, it's good for food. I want to eat it. She says, it's pleasant to the eyes, means it makes me happy. I love looking at it and holding it. It's very pleasant to the eyes. And then she says, uh, it will make us wise. Again, feeding her ego. Feeding the ego will make us wise. Here's all the benefits of this fruit. It's really tasty. It's really good to look at. It will make us super smart. Adam, eat, right? God said, don't do it. Don't do it. She chose, and Adam chose, self over God. And that is like the, the basis between all of this. Selflessness is the basis of all holiness. Selflessness is the basis of holiness. And it's the basis of the principles of godly love that we're discussing in this chapter. You know, in the Reformation, Calvin and Luther and others they said God is a sovereign. I hate the word applied to God because in that sense, they looked at the kings who were known as sovereigns at that time. And the king could sit on the throne as a sovereign and say, destroy that city. Feed me turkey legs. Bring me that maiden. The, the sovereign could do whatever they wanted. And they took that term, which not, it's not in scripture. And they call him the sovereign God, that he does anything he wants like a king on a throne. I don't believe God is that, that being. I think that term is inappropriately applied to God. He is love, that love that is selfless. And because he is selfless love, he's not like a sovereign who says, wipe that city out, give me a turkey leg and let me have that maiden. You see, we've applied manly terms to God, sovereign, and we use that without thinking, but sovereign is not really applied to him. Neither is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. Those are man-made words. I mean, he is love. That is where it said God is love. 
You have to take that as the primary thing, and if you want to add attributes underneath to explain him, fine. But let's use what Scripture says God is. And he's not this type of king who gets what he wants and does what he wants, even though he is doing what he wants because he is love, not to make it more confusing. Having said this, I don't believe that Paul is promoting here what's called asceticism. Just got to touch on it. When he embraced, before he embraced what's called the middle way, Buddha, he practiced extreme asceticism. And that means that he starved himself and he did not do this. And he did. Asceticism is huge in Eastern uh, religions where you do not let your flesh uh, overtake your spirit. You, you subjugate your flesh in every way. That's called asceticism. It comes from the Greek word aske, askesis, and it means to train, to train. So asceticism is someone who is constant. I mean, the Catholics, they practice asceticism during Lent. Mormons practice asceticism on Fast Sunday. Um, uh, Eastern uh, uh, religions practice asceticism through abstaining from the things of the world and flesh and sex and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and so uh, 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 Muslim pra practices Ramadan, and that's where they don't eat at all during daylight hours until sunset for a month. So all forms of asceticism found in religion. Christians practice fasting too. It's a form of asceticism. And say you should starve the flesh. Uh, uh, they, they, I know a lot about this because I studied it for quite a while. Gandhi, it, it was, it was, he was praised because when he died, all of his belongings could be found in one shoebox. But his aides came along and said, what people don't realize is how much money it costs to keep him down to having his possessions in one shoebox. I mean, we were constantly having to, to, to do all sorts of things and buy all sorts of things over and over and over and over again and get rid of them and, and, and waste because he wanted to have a life that was based in asceticism, you see. So uh, the danger is extreme asceticism thinking that it will justify you before God. What justifies us before God is our faith and our faith shown by our love. The carnal nature of ourselves, fasting's good, things like that, okay. But extreme asceticism, you have to throw it in there when you're talking about this concept of doesn't seek its own, right? It doesn't mean you have to uh, live in a, a hut, give away your worldly possessions, starve yourself in order to live godly love. Just get that straight. We're not, that's not promoting that at all. So um, it's in the heart. It's the, it's the attitude. Someone with great riches and wealth can have a true loving heart for God. And someone who is poor and broke can have the most proud heart in the world. It's all about that, right? So Paul adds, is not easily provoked. The word paroxono, and it means is not easily exacerbated. Is not easily stirred up to strife. Uh, it's only used one other time in Acts 17, 16. It says there, his spirit was stirred within him when he saw the city had wholly given over to idolatry. So his spirit was provoked within him. Doesn't mean you can't be provoked. Doesn't mean you can't be stirred to anger. It just is not easily done. There's the qualifying word. So when you are exhibiting long-suffering with a difficult person, it's not e you don't easily jump to provocation. Tyndale translated is not provoked to anger, easily the key. And it means 
you're calm and restrained by the Spirit and you choose to remain that way in the face of something that would otherwise drive you nuts. Again, a choice that we're responsible for. And then, thinketh no evil. The word thinketh is logizamahi, and you, you know that we have logos there. We have logos there, not logos. We have logos there, idzamahi. So what it is, is it's an inventory. It, it doesn't take an inventory. It doesn't estimate. It doesn't conclude uh, kakos, which is evil. It doesn't conclude evil in the actions or words of another person. And I have grown up with having that problem, man. I have the spiritual gift of suspicion that uh, when you say, hey, Sean, love your pants, you're really saying, I hate your pants. I think evil in the comments that people make. I grew up thinking that way. I was very paranoid toward what people would say. So it takes the spirit to overcome that and to choose again when someone makes a comment or doesn't act that they don't mean something bad. There's not something driving them that is evil. There's no evil intention in their motives uh, they're not being malevolent. They are just saying something. Now, it doesn't mean you're not right. You can get a backhanded uh, compliment or a, or a front-handed insult and know what it is, but it chooses not to take it as evil. You choose to say, well, just because you said, I have a funny nose when you walked up to me, I'm going to believe that you think I'm really an entertaining guy and that I add to your life with my humor. That's what you meant, right? You choose to think the best. And it's hard because you can easily think the worst of every word, action, wink, gesture that someone does. You can think it's so easy in our world to do that. And so again, the uh, discipline of love the way God loves, is to refrain from that even if you're right. And it is a beautiful way to adopt because, man, it just, it just smooths the path over. It makes people sometimes think you're really dumb, which is kind of fun too. Maybe that's, maybe that's pride. That they think they really slammed you and you're like, thanks for that, that was really nice. And you're really happy with them. They're like, that guy is so stupid. And you can rejoice in the fact that you're not going to think the evil toward them because God doesn't want us to. It's a form of living in peace and being able to love people even if they meant wrong. Not easy. Ever displace something and there's only one other person in the house when you displaced it and they were, they were a visitor or something and you are sure they stole it. Stole it. They stole it, right? And uh, my, my dad bought my mom a uh, $70,000 diamond ring. My dad, has, my dad has some bucks. He doesn't give it to me, so stop thinking that evil people. <laughs> and uh, he's stingy as heck. But, uh, you know, he's good, but he doesn't. But he got, bought her a $70,000 ring, and he didn't insure it. And one day, it was gone from their little retirement community house of one, two bedrooms. And there was one person who was in the house, the maid. 
And so everybody goes on pointing the fingers at the maid. And there was all this talk. The maid was hauled in and the little Hispanic maid, she may have taken it. All I know is that our family was all about the finger pointing. Well, guess what? My younger sister happened to make a visit to the house that day too. Hmm. Now my younger sister is the one who took it because my parents always wanted her to have it. And it was their way of sneaking it to her because she needs the money right now. And then everybody and letters were exchanged from my sisters to sister about how you have the ring. And if you just sat back and watched the thinking of evil and the machinations that went on against the maid and my sister over the taken ring, which is still gone. And no one really knows. So you can choose to say, my mom lost it. It's in that house somewhere. Maybe the maid took it. Maybe my sister took it. Maybe my dad took it and pawned it because he needed it. We don't know. But don't go down the road of thinking evil. You, it, because if you do, one, you're not able to really discern the truth. And your heart is filled with all sorts of ideas that may or may not be right. So the loving God tells us, choose to not think evil in these situations. Choose to not. Great, great advice to children who are his. And at verse 6, Paul says, Agape love rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. Twice rejoice is used in that passage. The term rejoice in the first sense means don't be glad or rejoiceful, kairo. And the second means be glad with, song kairo. So the first one is don't be glad for evil and then rejoice with non-evil. That's how rejoice is used in two different Greek words. It could mean godly love rejoices not in doing iniquity or godly love rejoices when others do not do iniquity or godly love rejoices not when iniquity is done to others. It can be, those three ways can be interpreted from that line. We don't know. I love the way the RSV says it. Godly love does not rejoice at wrong, but rejoices in the right. That solves all the problem right there with interpretation. Godly love is not happy when someone experiences injustice, wrong, when someone does injustice, wrong, or when others are unjust or doing wrong. Godly love does not rejoice when wrong is done. Godly love is always troubled by injustice, pain, wrongdoing, no matter who's the recipient. At times, we read of believers rejoicing when unfortunate things happen to people, like when people, people groups, like when the AIDS epidemic came out and homosexuals were dying of AIDS. There were Christians who were rejoicing that God is inflicting his wrath upon them. It doesn't rejoice in these things. They say, well, they justifiably deserved it. We are not the judge. Godly love does not rejoice in things that are harmful or in justice or in evil, okay? It rejoices in the things that are righteous. It is glad with goodness. Now, I know that passage and the example I just gave can be twisted. It has been and talked about. I see it in the way I just described. But don't rejoice over the wrong people do, the vices that they have, the problems that they fail in, the uh, evil that is inflicted upon them, the suffering they undergo, don't rejoice. 
but instead rejoice when there is prosperity and goodness and love and peace and happiness in everyone's life. And now we get to the passage that I believe would change the world of Christianity if we just accepted it. And we'll wrap it up with this. Godly love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Young's literal translation says, all things godly love bears, all things it believes, all things it hopes, all things it endures. All things. Four times. Pass in the Greek. All. 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 If you can say that about your life, you are Jesus. Number two. Carry on, sister or brother. You have arrived. Right? Do you, do I bear, believe, b- believe, bear, hope, endure all things as a follower of Christ? Should we? Paul says, godly love does. I can't get around this passage. Maybe I'm Pollyannish, maybe I'm stupid, a walking contradiction, but the Spirit of God tells me personally that this passage is one of the best summaries of a Christian attitude we can have. I don't care about the thinking, all these other things that we can come up with. That's what Paul's been addressing, thinking evil and rejoicing in this and in that and in this. I don't care about all that. I care about it, but I love the summary here. Why do we draw limits on it? I don't know. We say, well, you got to take all the other passages. He's talking about what God is, godly love, and he's telling us right here that it bears, it believes, it hopes, and it endures all, 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 all things. I take that to heart. I think if Paul was ever inspired in his writings, he was inspired in chapter 13. I think that this passage means more to a Christian in their life than any passage you can read relative to our Christian walk. Do you believe, do you bear, do you hope, and do you endure all things? All right? Let's break the words down and we'll wrap it up because this is an incomprehensible statement. Bears, stego, all things. It does not uncover the faults of others. Godly love is disposed to overlooking the imperfections of others. Stego says it bears with all things, hence the long suffering, right? It allows to sit with sinners at dinner. It allows to love them in a way that God can love them. It is benevolence uh, that does not accuse of wrongdoing. That is godly love. It believes. Pastuo is the word there. That's the Greek word we have for faith. It believes what? It has faith in all things, is what it says. What? All things? You got to take, you got to believe in the context of Scripture when the all is used. So I'm not saying that you should believe Satan is your Lord. That's all things, right? But I am saying within the reason of spirit and scripture, all things are possible. All things. In the realms of God's power, in the lives of his free will creations, I put nothing past his ability to do all things in the lives. I believe all things are possible through the love that God is. And I believe God will win all things through the love that he is. And the more 
I cultivate this view, this is interesting, the more love I have for others. The less I cultivate this view, the less love, agape love, I have for others. If I don't believe God can and will overcome all people, then my love stops short at the people it won't overcome. If I don't think ginger, freckled-faced, beautiful, handsome men (laughs) can ever be saved, can ever be saved, I will stop in my love toward ginger, handsome, beautiful-faced, freckled men. I will stop. God doesn't love them enough. I don't love them enough. When you believe God loves and can do all things and will, you believe it, you have faith, and you leave it up to him, your love will commensurately grow. Test it out if you don't believe me. Embrace a group or a people or a person who you cannot accept in your heart. Do it. Just try it and say, I believe God can, will. Use some historical figure. I love the one Hitler's always coming up, Mussolini, Pol Pot, whoever, right? You pick your despot. Can God overcome what that person has done in this life? I believe God can, and I will love them the way God tells me to. And then guess what I am? Free. And so are you. You're free. You're not trapped by your prejudices against other people. And you let God make the decision. You let God make the decision. Believe all things possible. Get it? I maintain that many things, if I maintain any list of things that are not possible for God, any list, those things become not possible for me. Believe all things with God allows us to love the impossible. Hopeth all things. Elipidzo, remember we defined hope. Hope comes in two two things have to be there for hope to be there. There has to be a desire and there has to be an expectation. So work with me on this for just a second. I don't believe God can save the non-freckle-faced, black-haired, short, unattractive men. He cannot do that, right? I don't hope all things because I don't desire that he does. I can't stand short, unattractive, dark-headed men. And I don't expect that he will. Therefore, I don't have hope. Okay? If I expect that he will, but I don't desire it, I can't have love. Oh, he's going to save him, I know, but real bummer that they're going to be there. So you can't have love. You have to have hope in the definition. It's a desire and it's an expectation. It hopes all things. I desire in my heart that all will be reconciled to God. I expect that God will reconcile all to himself. I believe, pistuo, that that will happen. I am then able to love everybody with the love that is listed here. Shortstop any of these things, Paul says, and you shortstop yourself in the love God wants you to have. Guaranteed. Your choice. And we choose wrong all the time because our flesh wars against it. Is there anyone rhetorically you don't want to see in heaven? Is there anyone you want to see go to hell, if you believe that concept? Is there anyone, anyone, that you are just certain 
They are the most vile, evil person and forget about them. That is where you have drawn the line in your own mind, toward them with God's love. Paul says, bear, believe, hope, all things. I used to have a laundry list of people. Oh, it was long, of people who were going to hell, and they're not going to be in heaven with me. Laundry list. Mormons were there. Anybody who didn't say Jesus' name was there. Anybody who did this or that, never believing God could, walked in a laundry list and walked in a world of, I don't like you. But when you open yourself up, trusting that it's all through Christ Jesus and what he did for you and me and this world, you are liberated. You are free to act in this love. When Jesus walked the earth, he was going through Samaria. It was a place that was forbidden by the Jews to go to. He was crossing through there with his disciples, which tells you something. And he had his eyes set on Jerusalem, is what it says, meaning the Samaritans knew Jesus isn't going to hang out with us this time. And they got mad, and they were sort of throwing, you know, the stink eye at Jesus. Well, it says in Luke 4, and when his disciples, James and John, they're called the sons of thunder, saw this, they said, Lord, will you that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? as Elias did, right? Under the law and the prophets to call down fire was the ability of the law. That was the law in place. And so when Elias did it, it was justified by the law. No longer, Jesus is walking with his disciples. He says, Jesus turned and rebuked them and said, you know not what manner of spirit you are of. Do you hear that? You don't know what manner of spirit you're entertaining right now. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. He was getting the stink eye from the Samaritans. They were murmuring about him, giving his allegiance to Jerusalem. John, James and John saw it, and they knew those guys were wrong. But how they wanted to respond with it, Jesus says, you have no idea the spirit that you're of. That says volumes. This love that God bears, it bears all things. It believes all things. It desires and expects all things. And then Paul wraps it up, and we'll wrap it up with, and it endures all things. Hupomeno, all things. <coughs> <coughs> Along the way, in this veil of tears, and this path we're on, this love seeks to endure and bear up under the stuff that is heaped upon us that go contrary to what the chapter is talking about. It strives to resist murmuring. It strives to refuse giving injury for injury. It chooses in the name of Jesus Christ to love and live as he loved and lived with all of it having direct application to what God wants and to what he wants us to have for everybody else around us. And we'll pick it up next week. Vanna, do your magic, Vanna. <laughs> Wait, do we have a new Vanna? Oh, we have a, we have a Ken and a Vanna. All right. Oh, he's holding his hand up. He had a question. <laughs>
Hi, Sean. This Hi. is Patrick. Hello, um, Patrick. I just want to say that the message of love has ministered to me in a, radical, in a radical way. Because that's hard for me to do. I'll be the first to admit that today, that that's very hard. But it, I work on it, especially the patience part. Love is patient. And uh, I'm standing at a stoplight trying to cross. I'm hitting that button to just, come on, let's go. So it's just hard. Or I got to catch my tracks to campus, church. I got to go. I'm like jaywalking. Love is patient. I don't want to get hit by a car. Plus, I don't want to hurt the other person's life by doing that to me. So. Praise God, brother. But it's been ministering it's to me, yeah. And that's so. why Christianity is not a cakewalk. It's not a cakewalk. It's very that is so true. Yeah. It's not the prosperity gospel cakewalk. <laughs> God. Is that it? Far side. That handsome, tall, dark-headed man who I know is going to be in heaven. Hi, Sean. Uh, I have a question. Uh, yeah. This is Christian. Uh, uh, is a love a test? It's, is a love something so hard? You know, when you go to college or whatever, you have to answer questions, right? And sometimes you don't like, in biology, I refuse to mark as a, what you call the evolution thing. Uh, you may excuse me, but I said, uh, you know, I don't believe in that, so I'm not going to mark it. So is the love the same way that? I think it's a constant challenge. Right? If constant. you don't pass it with Sean, then you may pass it with John. And if you don't yeah. pass it with John, then you have to pass it with, I don't know, Jessica, whatever. You know, it's like, is it that way sometimes? I that is it a is. test? I want to do a show of hands if you guys will participate. How many of you, especially people who are getting silver in the main, <laughs> how many of you have seen that over the course of your life you get revisited by the same problems over and over again? Most, every, every, I think everyone in here actually participated. That's the first time in campus history. Thank you very much for playing. Yeah, and I think that goes right in hand, in hand with what you're saying, that God is constantly giving us those things because he knows our personality. Sean, you have no problem hanging out with reprobates. Hang out with some uh, people who are proud and accomplished for a while, Sean, yeah. and see how you love them, right? So it's constantly working on us, and it's a constant test. Is that why we sin sometimes? Like, sure. as a sinner, you know, I wouldn't be able to forgive. Uh, and I can tell you I'm a, I'm a cheater. Uh, I commit every sin that you can think of, and because of that, every time that I get in trouble, uh, <laughs> I, it's, it's, it's not easy, but it's easier to forgive. Like, probably I didn't get the second chance. You know, and some people, even some presidents, they don't believe in the second chance. Mm. I didn't get the second chance, but why would I say no to the second chance to the others? Uh, is it, that's why love is so hard sometimes? Forget and forgive. I think so. Thanks, brother. Yeah. Oh, you hand it right up to Rachel. Um, this is Rachel. I was just going to add that um, in a different way, not just a test, but to look at it as a process, uh, more of like peeling an onion 
that those problems return again and again as different layers of the same problem because God's working deeper into your heart. So um, I I guess that's all I really had to say. <laughs> really good insight, Rachel. Yeah, it's a process. Anybody else? All right, thank you, Vanna. Let's pray. We've got quite a few people on this list, which is always good. Let's pray and get out of here. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for your word and the direction it gives and uh, um, the teachings that we derive from it on how to implement this demand, this only Christian demand, really, to love. And so that's what we want to focus on in our lives. And, and, uh, and as was mentioned, that you know, it is a test and it's a constant process and, and we are constantly being offered opportunity to rise above our own self and to uh, express ourselves in these ways to others and to put them and their needs first, wisely and rightly, but first. So help us to take this message and whatever we have from it by your spirit with us now. We pray for Robert uh, and Phyllis, um, healing from cancer, surgery and treatments, Gracie, peace and comfort healing grace for her and her family, Diana and Lily, uh, Liz, I mean, healing from surgeries, Ken and family, healing from grief, loss of Ken's mom, our nation and brotherly love, Patrick's mom, uh, Suzanne from seizures, Patrick's brother, Paul, to come to know God uh, and have a relationship with Jesus, Patrick's dad, Robert, that he can know God better and his mental problems will He'll have a desire to get help. Pray for Sean Scott, Patrick's friend, that he will come to know the truth and come out of Mormonism and to a real born-again relationship with Jesus the King. Many of us have prayers on our hearts for family members and children and parents and neighbors. And I pray now, Lord, that you'll help us to sort of focus areas in which we are not loving in the way you describe it, that we've are allowed by your spirit, which is gentle and kind and long-suffering, and that your spirit will move in us and help us rid ourselves of things that are allowing us to treat others with non-love. Your spirit can do it. Our flesh cannot. We pray for this now and anything else that's on anyone's heart that wasn't mentioned here, in Jesus' name. Oh, and I pray for my um, dear friend, uh, Vanessa, who had an aneurysm, brain aneurysm last week and her husband Steve and the whole Mangione family and I pray that you'll uh, you'll help her heal she's in a critical time now where strokes are almost inevitable but we've been praying for a miracle and she hasn't had one yet and so we just pray for Vanessa and their family and all the things that they stand in need of Lord in Jesus name amen